And we're going to turn together to Acts 27 for our reading this morning. Acts 27, if you've uh, got a Bible with you, you might want to open it there. There's five books into the New Testament, so not difficult to find. Just find Matthew and keep going right until you find some of the books like Acts. If you want a church Bible, there's plenty available. Uh, or if you're on your phone or your device, you can just cheat and type in Acts 27. <clears throat> As I read this, there's going to be some uh, images and uh, words on the screen behind me. And we've got a slight issue with the sound this morning, so it, it should appear the timing will be slightly off, but it might help us to understand this moment. Uh, as we get into it, just a quick word of, of exploration, uh, explanation uh, this morning. Uh, so, the book of Acts, if you don't know, is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the early church. And one person who's powerfully used is a man called the Apostle Paul. Uh, and he's so powerfully used that he becomes a threat in so many different ways. Uh, and eventually is, is arrested and then kind of gets lost, really, in the Jewish-Roman kind of legal system, gets passed from, from pillar to post. So at this point in time, when we open the book of Acts, Paul is under arrest and being taken to Rome. He could have been tried uh, as a Jew in Jerusalem. But Paul, as we're going to see in just a moment, is carrying a passion. He's carrying a vision. And because of that, he uses his rights as a Roman citizen to say, no, I want to go to Caesar. I want Caesar to hear about this Jesus of mine. And so because of that, he could have been in Jerusalem at this point. He's still traveling. He's still on the road. Uh, the other interesting thing about this uh, is the use of the word we in this story. If you know the book of Acts well, you'll know that it starts as Luke's story of the history of the church. And along the way... A doctor called Luke gets saved under Paul's ministry and then becomes part of the story. And so about midway through the book of Acts, we get loads of um, uh, Luke talking from, from first person, from eyewitness. So, Acts chapter 27. When it was decided... When it was decided that we would sail for Italy... Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidon, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we'd sailed across the open sea off the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sydney. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because it was now after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. 
Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. There was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid that we would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the life down down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. 
When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail into the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Of, of scripture, amazing moment uh, in Paul's life. One of three times, actually, that he was shipwrecked. Uh, I'd love us just to spend some moments diving into this story. And there was a whole bunch of stuff uh, I was going to share at this passage today, but readers have been going through it afresh uh, over this weekend and this morning. There's, there's really just one thing, I think, uh, that I want to share out of this passage. So, Peter, if we can get the, the PowerPoint up. Um, so, Paul's in Judea. He's been in uh, Caesarea. Uh, he's under guard, so he's chained. His feet and his hands are in chains. The centurion who's looking to take him to Rome uh, knows that this is going to be a long journey. And now, ordinarily, if you were trying to get from Judea to Italy, uh, you wouldn't really bother with all the, the coastal bits at all. You'd want to head for um, uh, Crete and then this little harbour called Phoenix. It's a large harbour. There's a large town there. You can refresh your men, refresh the boat, get back on, uh, and then take another uh, route over to, to Italy. Uh, on a difficult journey, you'd be hoping to do this in somewhere between a week to 10 days. But things don't go to plan. Uh, they set off from Sidon, and instantly the winds are against them. So immediately there's a problem. It's interesting, isn't it, how, how often in life we can drift along, we can just plan to do stuff, but it's when you set your course somewhere that really all the forces seem to come against you. And there's this force that is not allowing them to go where they want to go. It's not allowing them to go uh, where they want to go at all. It's driving them away. So they eventually decide, well, we'll, we'll follow a coastal path then. We'll, we'll go up and they go along the coast of Sicily and Pamphylia and Lycia. And even then, the wind is against them. So they're struggling to make any headway at all. Uh, eventually, they set sail from there. They're a bit worried about going around this bit. So they decide to go to Crete uh, and they find a harbor called Fair Havens and they rest there. And Paul, who probably, at this time in his life, is the most experienced boatman among them. He's done so many journeys now. We're almost right at the end of the book of Acts here, aren't we, in, in this chapter. He probably knows more about the sea than anyone. And so he comes to them and he says, listen, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. 
Strangely, the centurion doesn't think, oh, he's concerned about our lives and our safety, so obviously we should listen to him. He's probably thinking he just doesn't want to go to Rome and face the charges that are against him. And so he, he ignores Paul's words. He listens to the pilot of the ship and the other men. When a soft wind starts to blow, they think, well, we could set off again and, and make our own way uh, forward. It's interesting, isn't it, what you do in those moments when you speak into a situation and it's not received. And you share something that you can see in front of you, whether it's been a, a spiritual revelation, we don't know from Paul's words here, whether this is something that God has said to him or something that he's just aware of. Uh, we do know that the timing of this journey isn't great. We're told it's after the Day of Atonement, uh, which is somewhere mid-October, and sailors in this part of the world have got a saying, uh, sailing is difficult in September, it's impossible in November, so they're right in the, in the middle of silly season to be in a boat. But either way, Paul sees the damage that's coming. And he speaks into this situation that is not received. Uh, they decide to make a go for it. So from fair havens, they set out again. And then suddenly, this wind of hurricane force, known locally in the area as the Northeaster. So that's showing us where the wind is coming from, from the Northeast. And it's driving them southwest. And so they're trying to get up and around, but it's forcing them down. Uh, they're so concerned at one point that they might hit some sandbars off the coast of, of North Africa. So they're terrified about where this is driving them. This wind of hurricane force is, is, is battering the ship. So much so that they pass ropes under the ship to hold it together. That's how worried they are. There's a lifeboat behind this ship, and they're worried that that's going to bash them apart or hold them back, so they hoist that aboard. Now, an Alexander trading ships were not well made. They were fit for purpose, but nothing more. They weren't beautiful to look at, particularly strong. The only thing that they had that was worth anything was the cargo on board. And these sailors, whose lives depended on their cargo, realized we're not going to survive this storm. And so they start throwing their cargo overboard. God's word tells us that for a number of days, they saw neither the sun nor the stars. And again, of course, in the ancient world, that's how you plotted your course. That's how you navigated. So in this ferocious wind, they're desperately throwing stuff overboard, desperately trying to hold the ship together, desperate. And it actually tells us that after three days of doing this in the utter darkness, they gave up all hope of being saved. This is a desperate moment. Can't see a solution anywhere. Don't even know at this point where they are. They're being battered and, and blown around. And then Paul speaks. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. In the Greek, I think that's, I told you so. Uh, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. So there's good news and bad news, uh, but you're not going to die, Paul says. I'm fascinated by this moment when you've got Julius, the, the centurion, uh, who should be in charge of his prisoners. You've got the sailors who should be in charge of their ship, who've all given up any hope. And then you've got Paul, a man who's in chains by his hands and his feet, speaking hope into the situation. Keep up your courage. He sounds like the one in charge. Keep up your courage because not one of you 
will be lost. Now, how does Paul know that? Where do those words come from? Because it's easy to offer words of hope, isn't it? But you also want to offer words of truth. Comfort that is not based in truth is no comfort at all, is it? So where does, where, where's Paul speaking from? Well, Paul then goes on to say this. Uh, last night... Oops, sorry, let's go back one. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. How often do angels say that? Do not be afraid. I'd love to look through sometime, because I'm fairly convinced, almost every time, some of you all will already be doing this now in your head, but I think every time an angel appears, there must be something so powerful about their presence when they speak. They need to tell us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. It's like the angel comes to Paul, says, Paul, you may have given up hope of being saved, because that's what the Bible says they all had in those three days without sun or stars. But you can't die here on this boat. This can't be the end of your story, because God has already told you you're going to stand trial before Caesar. Paul, previous to this, had lived a very, very different life. He'd been a Pharisee, as he described himself, of the Pharisees. He'd been one of the ruling members of the law keepers for Israel. And when people started to say that Jesus was the Messiah and that you could pledge your life and your loyalty to Jesus, he was furious with this. And he set his life to destroying this, this heresy. And then the Lord meets with him on the Damascus Road and calls him. And one of the things that he says to them is that you will be an apostle to the Gentiles and their king. So Paul lives with this vision. In the previous chapter of this, he's been talking to a king. And one of the things he does is to tell him his story. Three times in the book of Acts, Paul tells his story of meeting Jesus uh, with people. He loves to share his story of Jesus with people. And he tells them the story of Jesus calling him. And then he says, I've not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul lived with this thing, I've, I've got to tell people about Jesus, and especially the Gentiles, and especially their kings and, and their rulers. So the angel comes to Paul and says, this is not the end, Paul. It can't be the end because you must stand trial before Caesar. And it strikes me that sometimes in the storms of life, I go running to God to give me a word, to give me some hope, to give me a message. And sometimes I don't need a new message from God. I just need to believe the one he's already given to me. Paul, this can't be the end. And, just as an added bonus, God has given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And the impact of Paul's words here are massive. I wonder sometimes when God has spoken to us in certain circumstances, in certain places, uh, if it can feel to us so personal, and sometimes we wonder if it's so subjective that we can be nervous about it. I love the fact that Paul here is, is putting it all out into the open. He stands there and, and tells them all 
oh, guys, I met an angel last night, and he tells me you're going to be okay because God's got a purpose for my life. So we're going we're to be all right with this. Sometimes we can underestimate, can't we, sharing what God has spoken to us, what God has whispered to us in the storms, in the darkness, has an impact for other people. And as scary as it can be to open our mouth and make ourselves vulnerable and to say, I, I just think God might be saying this. When people see that, it, there's something so precious, something so powerful about that. I wonder today if there's some of us who are in a storm, perhaps even right now, where there's some place we want to be and forces are pushing us and stopping us from getting there. When we feel like our life in all kinds of ways is taking a battering. So much so that those things that we once counted on, we're, we're throwing overboard. We're giving up on things left, right, and center. And we're trying to hold our life together. And I wonder if there is a word that God has given you that you just need to go back to and hold on to. This can't be the end. Because God has a purpose for my life. I love the moment in the Gospels. Uh, it comes just after, a, a, well, there's two moments right, right back to back. Uh, there's one time when Jesus has been teaching and crowds have flocked to him. Uh, and there's so many there that, and they don't really worry about the rest of their day. That they, It comes to lunchtime and they're quite hungry, uh, quite, quite starving. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, oh, how are we going to feed these people? And they've got no faith to feed thousands upon thousands. And so we just haven't got the resources. We're going to have to send them home. Jesus says, no, no, you give them something to eat. And so they start to think about, well, perhaps there's some food somewhere lying around. And it takes a child. Don't you love the faith of a child? Sometimes when we overcomplicate things and muddy the waters, to see with the faith of a child, this little boy with his lunchbox, looking something like that, Five loaves of bread and two small fish comes and offers it to Jesus. And then the disciples bring it to Jesus almost apologetically. Well, we, well, we, have, we have found some food. Um, I don't know if I want to tell you, but it's, it's five small loaves and two small fish. Jesus says, great, have the people sit down. And the disciples are probably thinking, well, if there is a moment where this, this movement's going to finish, it's, it's right now. Then if you've had those moments when you've stepped out in faith and tried to do something for God, and then you've looked at the resources and thought, this is going to be such a small, <laughs> such a short. But they have the people sit down, and Jesus takes it, gives thanks, breaks it, and the disciples distribute it to the people. And it doesn't run out. It just keeps going. And then Jesus says to the disciples, could you pick up all the leftovers? And I'm sure they're thinking at this point, I, I don't know if there are any leftovers, but they take these baskets around and they fill 12 baskets full of the leftovers from this meal. Absolutely incredible. 
Immediately after that, Jesus wants to go and pray. And so he says to the disciples, why don't you uh, make a head start? Why don't you get on the boat and go across the ocean? I'm going to go up the, the mountain to pray. We see this often in the ministry of Jesus, just after a time of ministry. Uh, there's a time of re- replenishing, refilling. And guys, if Jesus needed that, we need that more. And Jesus goes off to pray. And while they're out on the lake, there's this storm that hits. Now, these are fishermen, many of them. Many of them know this lake like the back of their hand, fished it since they were a boy, taught it by their dad and their dad before them. They know what storms are, but this storm petrifies them. They start crying out from the boat, which fishermen don't do. If anybody knows how to handle a storm as a fisherman, they don't know what to do. And then somebody sees something coming at them through the mist and the the waves. And it's a person. And this person is walking on the water. I know we've heard this story since we were in Sunday school, but let me just say that again. Walking on the water. On the very thing that was causing them fear and dread. But for Jesus, it became a pathway. Without trouble, there's no testimony. And Jesus walks towards them. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. But clearly, the last time it happened, somebody in the boat thought to themselves, the next time this happens, I want to go at this. And so Peter says, Lord, if that's you, call me to come to you. Sounds crazy, but this is what a rabbi did. They invested so much uh, in their disciples that they could do what the rabbi could do. So if this rabbi really is Peter's rabbi, if it's really Jesus, Peter's going to be able to do this. So Jesus says, come on then, Peter, let's, let's walk on water for a while. And so Peter, to his credit, now he gets a lot of bad press for this story, but to his credit, Peter sits on the edge of the boat, swings his legs over, allows his feet to touch the coldness of the water, pushes himself off the boat, and starts to walk on the water towards Jesus. I love Peter so much. He's walking on the water towards Jesus. What a moment in Peter's life. And then he sees the wind and the waves. Then he wakes up and thinks, what on earth did I think I was doing? Kind of an interesting phrase, though. He saw the wind. You can't see wind. So often what causes us fear is the unseen, isn't it? What we think, what we imagine. But this fear causes Peter to start to sink cries out to Jesus, who immediately reaches out his hand and lifts Peter uh, out of the water and then goes back uh, with Peter into the boat. So Peter and Jesus, for a while, are walking on the water together. And then Jesus gets back into the boat, and we read these words. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. Isn't it amazing? When Jesus is in the boat, the wind dies down. They were completely amazed. Now, I love how Mark puts this. Two stories back to back. They were completely amazed. 
He could have said because they'd forgotten that Jesus walked on water before. He doesn't say that. He says they were completely amazed because they had not understood about the loaves. Sometimes I don't need a new word from God. I just need to trust the word he's already given to me. Sometimes those words will come as phrases or as pictures or as messages from others. Sometimes they'll come as experiences. There was something about watching Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish that was meant to equip them for the storm. But their hearts, it said, were hardened. Is it possible that we get so used to Jesus that our hearts get hardened and we lose our awe? Is it possible that we get so used to him showing up and doing things that we lose our wonder? They were completely amazed because they'd not understood about the loaves. Last night, Paul says, an angel came to me and said, Paul, do you remember the loaves? Do you remember the times that God has been at work in your life? Do you remember the promise that God has given to you? As a uh, teenager, there was uh, a season of my life where um, the church room was, was just encountering a special season of blessing, and a big part of that was sung worship. Uh, and as a musician, I, I just fell in love with worship. I used to love it. I used to couldn't wait for Sunday to come around. And there was one season of my life where I loved it so much, I would get up early on a Sunday to warm up so that my voice wouldn't get tired uh, with, with singing on, on a Sunday. And sometimes there'd be those songs that you'd sing where you just felt the faith rise in the room. You know those moments where you feel the passion around you? It's like being, I don't know, in a tidal wave or something like that, or standing in a waterfall. It's just a beautiful moment. And you don't want it to end. You just want to keep going and, and going. There's a group of people in the church that used to love to sing. And sometimes you just wanted to be the person that held the note the longest, you know, that loved Jesus the most, that worshipped the hardest. But passion, true passion, is not so much measured by how long I can hold a note, but how long I can hold on to God's vision for my life. I love the story of the Welsh Revival so much. And for me, it's like recreational reading. If I'm not reading anything else, I'll pick up a book about the Welsh Revival. I love the story of this man, Evan Roberts, who... It was one of the people who was used very, very powerfully during the Welsh Revival. He became saved, although he'd grown up in a Christian home, he became saved at the age of 13 and began to get really frustrated with the state of the church in Wales at that time. He said it, it felt like Christianity had failed Wales. And so he prayed every day that God would revive the church in Wales as a 13-year-old. Sometimes the family would all get together for a meal and he'd say, I can't come down yet, I've not finished praying. Sometimes he would set an alarm clock so he could wake up during the night to just to pray, to keep on praying. He seems to have developed some sort of spiritual sensitivity. He was aware of times when other people were praying for him. He could be in conversation with somebody and stop and say, oh, sorry, somebody's praying for me. And he would just receive energy from that somehow. And later on, the person would tell him, oh, I was praying for you, and he said, yeah, I know, it was about four o'clock. 
He longed to be as close to God as he could be this side of eternity. In fact, in one of his early diaries, he writes, if I could live a life of constant prayer, I would. And he keeps praying for Wales. God, revive your church in Wales. As a 13-year-old, the revival doesn't hit Wales until he was 26. So for 13 years, and I know we love to tell the story of the revival, that nothing was happening, the church was dead, blah, blah, blah. the Holy Spirit comes, everything explodes. The, Holy Spirit, the, the, the revival is the Holy Spirit's story. But 13 years of prayer, every day, holding on to a vision. And there must have been times when he thought, what am I doing? Not seeing anything, nothing's happening, but praying and praying and praying. I'd love you just to think for a moment about the word that you carry. There will be something that has landed for you in a unique way. For some of us, we know immediately what that is. Other of us will have to think back and try to remember when the loaves and fishes was for us or other encounters are. But what is the vision that you carry? It's easy, isn't it, just to look at our lives through what we can see or what we can imagine. But what has God said about you? What is God calling you into, towards, to be a part of or to start? And just hold that today and hear these words. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish. So it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Interestingly, the water cycle was there in the scripture long before the science gave it words and language. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Sometimes we don't need a new word from God. We just need to trust the word he's already given to us. Let's just pause there to pray together this morning.